WBNE. Hello and welcome to episode 148, all about the Silmarillion, chapter 9, of the flight of the Noldor, being the 148th part of That's What I'm Talking About. My name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time, and right now I am reading The Silmarillion, so you don't have to. Today I'm joined by Dan, aka the voice of geekdom. Welcome! Thank you, Mary. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for coming on, especially for, holy cow, a, a packed chapter which we will get into <laughs> yes yeah, a zinger of the chap the chapter it's one of my favorites <laughs> yes a zinger indeed what like a perfect word i think to describe it yeah i was i was really pleased when you asked me to do this particular chapter actually i asked you which chapter you wanted me to do and i was i was actually hoping for this one so <laughs> oh good yeah i was really intimidated by this one just looking ahead at like the the table of contents just because this one it most of the chapters have been like two to six pages so far and this one was 10 and so I was like oh boy this one's a bit longer this one's probably going to be it might be harder for me to get through or read because there's is it going to be like longer is it going to be but it was like I had no trouble reading it and I was like flying through the pages surprisingly and but but a a lot happens though (laughs) in those 10 pages oh my gosh yeah (laughs) like so much yeah 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 um, but before we, we dive into that, why don't you tell me and the listeners a little bit about how you got into Tolkien and, and Lord of the Rings, whether that was through Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit mm. or the movies or the books. What was that like? Yeah, so um, I, I've been a lifelong fan, really. Um, I, I first read The Hobbit when I was around about six. Um, actually, my, my dad read it to me when I was in hospital. Um, with my I was having my grommets put in my ears. And... Um, and so my dad read it while I was in hospital recovering from that. And he ended up reading it to the entire ward of all the other kids who <laughs> gathered round and um, were all listening. Um, oh, that's so sweet. And so um, so that was my first experience with Tolkien. Um, and then I immediately took the book off him and read it myself. Um, so I read The Hobbit myself at that, at that age. Um and then it wasn't very long before we, we did the same thing with The Lord of the Rings. So my, my dad read that first and then I read it um, afterwards, probably around the age of eight. So pretty young to be reading The Lord of the Rings. And so I came to it before the movies. Um, and the, the movies came out when I was around about 15 or so. Um, and so that was another wave of Tolkien fandom that kind of, it kind of came back again because I got into the books again at that point. Um, I've read The Lord of the Rings countless times. <laughs> um Shortly after the I read in the Lord of the Rings, I read the Silmarillion, and initially the Silmarillion was too difficult for me at that young age. Um, it's 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 not the longest book, the Silmarillion, but it's a very weird book with a lot of yeah. names, a lot of Elvish, a lot of old fangled language, um, and it's just it's got a different kind of um, narrative voice to it that just sort of doesn't really doesn't really kind of come off in the same way uh, to a child. Um, yeah for sure and so I initially I didn't take that much from it other than reading the Beren the Luthien chapter um, which I knew the story already from the Lord of the Rings and so I kind of 
came back to that and um, knew that story better when I reread The Lord of the Rings again, which, you know, I took something from my first read of The Silmarillion. But but it was a few more years before I read The Silmarillion again. Um, and yeah, I just just always been a lifelong, lifelong passion. It's one of my, my first fandoms and first loves in literature. And um, yeah, it's never, it's been an ever present in my life, really. And how, what was it that made you just um, decide to start your YouTube channel and, and dive into it with the depth that you are doing right now? Well, I started my YouTube channel around about spring 2020, which... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> fa- familiar. <laughs> found, found myself with a lot of extra spare time um, on my hands at that point. So um, um, I didn't have a lot of work at the, mo- at the time. Um, and so I was... I found myself with a lot of free time. And I, I made a friend online. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Helen the Clueless Fan Girl, is her, is her YouTube channel. Um, and so she... We became friendly through Twitter and just I was a fan of her channel because she was going into these deep dive law discussion podcast type discussions about Silmarillion law and stuff like that and doing content that no one else was really doing. We became friendly through Twitter and so on. And she asked me to come on her channel. So um, my first my first kind of um, dipping my toes into doing this kind of online content creation was was on her channel as a guest. Somebody that you should have on your ta- your uh, podcast in the future, if you, if you can get yes, her. Yes, for sure. She point. is, to pull back the curtain a little bit, I keep a nice, not creepy at all list of, <laughs> of potential guests. You were on it, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> and um, she is on that list, too, as well. So I'm sure at some point or another, I will be reaching out to her. <laughs> yeah, so she, we've become really good friends um, over the last couple of years. and um, And so that was my first... My first dip in my toes, and she she kind of um, egged me on to make it making my own channel. Um, so I started in the summer that year, um, and I started with the Silmarillion. So I, I have a long running series on my channel where I do um, a little bit different to this, but I, I do the Silmarillion chapter by chapter, um, and it's but it's very much short form scripted content where I will read excerpts and then discuss them and introduce some of the key themes and also with the aid of visual aids. So I'll, you know, I'll include maps and, um, very helpful and, and, you know, (laughs) fully sourced fan art and that sort of thing that, um, can, can help first time readers to, to understand the concepts a bit better and also to familiarize themselves visually with the, with the characters, I think helps. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Listeners, um, uh, as always, uh, stuff will be linked in the episode description. So make sure to go check out those videos if you want kind of like a, a companion piece if you're reading along with me or if you um, want some more visual elements or you want someone to explain it more piece by piece. Um, definitely go check that out because it seems like a really great resource to have as you're reading The Silmarillion, which, mm. as we all know by now, is very... There's just always a lot going on. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear that obnoxious car. I can hear, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so rude. But yes, yeah, I think as I was saying, the Silmarillion is very dense 
and there's always so much going on. So any, you know, extra resources we can all find to help us piece things together. I still, this is through my own laziness. I've mentioned a lot on previous episodes of like, I need to look up a better map because the map that's in the back of my book is just of Beleriand and which is great for, I'm sure the later half of the Silmarillion, but like in these first couple chapters where everything's happening in Valinor, there's hmm. th- that's not included on the map and so i'm like i don't know where no, <laughs> these islands are and they're just north and south of each other i guess so <laughs> yeah it's very hard to picture actually where things are in relation to one another there's also yeah. angband isn't on the Beleriand map either so um angband yeah, is, like, is morgoth's fortress we haven't really been properly introduced to yet at this point in the book but it's it's a very important location in a lot of the stories from here on outward um and it's just not on the map, which is yeah, which is yeah. baffling, actually. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've had some really wonderful listeners post something on social media and tag me or send it to my DMs, and mm. it's just through my own laziness that I just haven't <laughs> gotten around to, you know, looking up something to have as a you know side by side as I'm reading along. Yeah. One one thing I recommended in my series was uh, Karen Wynne Fonstad's Atlas of Middle Earth is is an excellent resource. It's got maps from all three ages of Arda and it's got detailed maps of locations um, and kind of paths of different like population growths and climates and all sorts. She, she's a professional oh was, wow. was a professional cartographer. Um, she did a, a full study of everything. Um, it's a really interesting book. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, I think um, I think you're probably if I if my stupid brain that holds like five brain cells now at this point in Tolkien world, um, I think there have been previous guests who have recommended that. So clearly, it's a very like high like highly mm-hmm. regarded resource. So mm-hmm. yeah. All right, cool. So now let's let's dive into this hefty chapter where so much happens and boy is it dramatic i love it um damn for your context i've said in previous episodes that some of my favorite parts of tolkien and his stories are they're the the most dramatic the most extra the messiest parts Mm. of the story and it gets messy here for sure. So <laughs> yeah, we we really see a whole different side to the elves that we've that you, oh my you've certainly never seen before at this point. Um, yeah, Feanor is a he's borderline evil with a small e. I call him. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, he's, he, there's capital E evil. There's the dark lords, and there's the uh, there's the kind of you know the the big evil, and then there's your garden variety evil, and and Feanor's just a you know. Smally evil, I call him. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a perfect way to describe it too. And of course, like that's very true to life. You know that like mm. their life isn't split into like good guys and bad guys. Mm. There are people who we expect to be the good guys, and they're of course going to be bad seeds among them. Um, and that's just and Tolkien, you know, did that with Lord of the Rings too, where we have Saruman, who is supposed to be our good guy, and ends up being corrupt and evil, but evil in a different way than Sauron is evil, you know. And so it's very that's I just love how true to life that is. That you know the reality is not bad guys and good guys. There's mm. gray areas in between, and Feanor is clearly someone who thinks he's a good guy mm-hmm. and is going about everything the exact wrong way. Yeah, he's a little different to Saruman in that Saruman is kind of the 
ends justify the means and then that mm. kind of that argument takes over until the point where he becomes too power hungry to you know really recognize how evil he's become whereas Feanor yeah. Feanor is just kind of an explosion of anger and angst and jealousy um oh my gosh angst with a capital a <laughs> yeah. i'll say he's evil with a lowercase e but angst <laughs> with the capital a <laughs> yeah um yeah he's like a petulant teenager he he acts mm. and we've seen this from him already you know we saw how he um interacted with his his half brother in back in chapter seven um and we've seen this from him already we know what kind of character he is but he takes it up a notch in this chapter um yeah he's yeah. I, I think i find him a fascinating character um wonderful to read <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, he's not like he may not be everyone's like favorite character in terms of like, oh, he like I want to emulate his qualities or I admire his values or mm. I connect to him or something. But like he's interesting to read. He makes the story good to read. <laughs> as far as his qualities as well, I mean, um, in I think in the next chapter, I think it is. Um, we are told that Feanor is the greatest of all the children of Iluvatar. So he's the greatest elf or man to ever exist. And there's a long list of superlatives that Tolkien's narrator gives us about Feanor, that he's the, the most beautiful, the most skilled, and he's given more superlatives than any character in the book other than maybe Luthien. Um, and so he he's a special person in history. Um, uh, I guess the the second greatest of the Noldor that we're told is is Galadriel elsewhere in other sources, um, and and those two have an interesting relationship too. But yeah, I'm waffling, so we should probably get into the story. But... Yeah, let's yeah let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first up, the I'm not going to read the first the whole opening paragraph of this chapter, but mm. wow, I just found it really beautiful. I mean, it's like what it's describing is really depressing and despairing but of course of course Tolkien just being such an expert writer the way he wrote he described everything was just so vivid and I could like really feel what um the Valar are feeling in this moment where um reminder everyone and previously on the Silmarillion Ungoliant and Melkor have teamed up and they have killed the trees of Valinor and the light has been sucked out and gone out in Valinor. Um, and so now they are just immersed in kind of darkness with a capital D. And it says, Yavanna arose and stood upon Azelohar, the green mound, but it was bare now and black. And she laid her hands upon the trees, but they were dead and dark. And they're falling lifeless in her hands, and they're hearing all of these cries of lamentation across the land. Manwe is just kind of standing up there, like, I guess, like, in a daze of just, like, what has happened? And this sentence, oh, my God, I love it. So it says, it seemed to those that mourned that they had drained to the dregs the cup of woe that Melkor had filled for them. But it was not so. And I just love that. Drained to the dregs the mm. cup of woe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just, oh, my, I was just like, okay, Tolkien, you're a like, I make fun of him a lot, but <laughs> he's just 
I would say at least once every chapter, if not more, there's always an instance where I'm like, that's so amazing. I never would have thought to write those words in that order in such a beautiful way. Yeah, the alliteration, the drain to the dregs is really, really nice, yeah. isn't it? Um, so Yovana comes over and they're all kind of having a council, a meeting, regrouping everything hmm. and says, there's no way I can bring the trees back to life. Um, however, um, if I could tap into some of their light, I could maybe do that. And to do that, we need the Silmarils. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and immediately I'm like, I see where this is going. And Feanor is probably also sitting there like, I also see where this is going. Yeah. Um, so they essentially ask Feanor, who, remember, they were all just having this party. Feanor had been commanded to come by Manwe. Um, and he comes and he is not wearing the Silmarils. He's not dressed up for a party in any sense of the word. He's there kind of in protest almost. So they say, Feanor, will you please give us the Silmarils so that we can use the light that you have captured to bring back the trees of Valinor and relight Valinor and, and, you know, release us from this eternal darkness and help and save everyone. And Feanor's like, he's quiet for a minute. And then Mm. he says, um, I don't think so, (laughs) because that would make me really sad, because then the Silmarils would be broken and I wouldn't have them. And um Well, well what he what he actually says is I, I, I will die if if yes. if, if I, I could it may be in my power to release the light and and do that, but I would die in the attempt. Which I, I tend to wonder whether he's he's actually telling us the truth there. I don't know whether that's whether that's necessarily true. Um, yeah, we, or if he's just yeah, he, toying with he, everyone's emotions of he, like, do he, you really want this to kill me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he could be manipulating them. He could be um, manipulating himself. He could be convincing himself that that is true, um, because the Silmarils are so important in his own mind that he he thinks that he wouldn't survive their loss. Um, so i i tend to I tend to wonder about the the veracity of everything that he says in this chapter. Honestly, oh yeah. Uh, definitely a hundred percent um he says i shall break my i must break them i shall break my heart and i shall be slain Mm. and then he says first of all the eldar in amon and then mandos very ominously says not the first Mm -hmm. and everyone's kind of like okay i don't know what that means but all right (laughs) um okay then mandos you weirdo (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and at first i was like oh does he mean um muriel Feanor's mom who she died um but she also died in like a weird elf way where like she doesn't technically die like her spirit was so decayed and broken that it just like left her body eventually so like she didn't die I guess in our traditional sense of the word so well she died first... she died like Padme died in um Revenge of the, Revenge of the Sith it was that kind mm. of death it was like she died of a broken heart <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly like, not, so not exactly like... but but, does that does that count as when he says uh, I will be slain yeah. first of all the Eldar yeah, he, and then Mandos says, is not the first he says I, I, I like, will be slain which which I take that yeah. to mean that that would be something that would be done to him you know it'd be yeah. it'd be a violation of him um, and so he would be the first to be to be slain yeah in that moment at first I was like 
wow, that was like really deep of Mandos to remind Feanor of his mother who died, who he is saying, I will be the first of all the elder. But as we will see in a moment, that is not who he is speaking about. Mm-hmm. Um so they're all kind of sitting around having this council, this debate about what to do. And um, before they can ever really reach a conclusion, word comes that uh, at Fe- uh, Feanor's fortress where he had been exiled to with Finway, his father, and his sons who he took with him. As an, as- as an aside, Finway, what do you think yes. of Finway? Um, a-, a pretty awful father, right? I mean... He, or at least a weak. weak he father. seems, yeah. It, it seems like a very tragic situation hmm. where he seemed to be a great leader, I think, with great potential. But then what happened with his first wife is, of course, very sad. And uh, it's it's hard because it's like he created Feanor in some sense to to be who he is now and what he does in this chapter by like kind of always giving him whatever he wants and stuff. But at the same time, like, how can you judge a father who is looking at their child whose mother has died and like not want to give them everything? So like that I understand. But yeah, he does just kind of seem like a very beaten down a uh, uh, leader and father figure where he doesn't really seem to have much of a spine anymore and doesn't really seem to be doing much in any si- like the chapter where mm. um uh, I think it was the unrest of the Noldor a couple chapters ago where uh Fingolfin comes to Finway and is alerting him to what Feanor is saying and doing and is saying you need to step up and do something and he doesn't really respond or say anything to that and it seems that now the next his sons have kind of taken over without him with him just being like i guess this is what's happening yeah 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 there's a there's a lack of leadership from him i think and um he yeah he's his parenting role seems to be to enable his wild son and um yeah favoritism in parenthood is never a good thing yeah Um, (laughs) to say the least (laughs) uh but yeah it's particularly pointed example of that because he just yeah he's He's, he's responsible for a lot of the issues that I think arise in the psyche of his his sons and a lot mm-hmm. of the problems that 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 uh, Melkor is able to capitalize on um, yeah. arise from his poor parenting. Yeah, I definitely think if he would step up as more of a leader, like later in this chapter, we see Olway, who is the leader of the Teleri, mm-hmm. um, and... He is like a great leader and he really stands up for his people and stands up against Feanor. Again, we'll get there in a second. And meanwhile, Fenway, I feel like if he stepped up and took the lead and spoke out against his sons having this fight and everything and said, stop listening to Melkor, then we maybe wouldn't be in this situation, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, definitely. It's as though a piece of him died when his first wife died. Yes, and, and exactly. He, and he never really recovered from that, I think. Um yeah, there's a. I, I mentioned this in my Silmarillion series, but there's a really interesting um, uh, text that Tolkien worked on about Finway and Muriel, um, and about what happened when she died, because that was that was something strange and otherworldly that happened to her when she died. It wasn't supposed. 
like that had never happened before and the Valar were surprised by it they didn't think that that could happen that an elf could just die you know we would call it as humans we would call it of natural causes like she died in childbirth like we would think nothing of it but for an yeah. elf that's that's a weird thing to happen like there's it's bizarre it's unheard of yeah um, and, and so they they kind of had this debate amongst themselves and they actually make a new law as a result of it which kind of allows for posthumous divorce basically um whereby finway is able to remarry um and so they make this ruling uh, the valar do um but they also discuss the fact that miriel dies and that she um she has her death is the, as a result of the marring of Arda, which is kind of like a concept whereby the world has become corrupt because of the first mm. evil of Melkor. Um, the his his um his role in the music of the Ainur like introduces a seed of evil to the universe. Basically, um, it's very sort of biblical in terms of its theological right composition yeah. that that aspect of the mythology, but. But yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, um, and if you are looking for more Tolkien to read after the Silmarillion, I would recommend that section of Morgoth's Ring because it's the Miriel story that's in the Silmarillion is kind of very short and sweet, and but it also doesn't really go anywhere, and it doesn't seem to sort of fit with any kind of narrative. It's just kind of it gets Feanor and Finway to where they have to be, but right, but, yeah. it, but she's just sort of written out of it. What ends up happening to her is she uh, becomes this spirit in the um, Halls of the Dead and she's um, working for one of the Valar there and um, spinning these tapestries where she's um, weaving these tapestries of the history of the Noldor as they're happening. So she's like watching all, all, all of the tragedy that's going to happen in the next, you know... 10 chapters she's going to be watching it and weaving it in these tapestries which is wow yeah <laughs> adds another layer of context to it for sure horrible fate <laughs> um, yeah but yeah it's it's a, it's a really important event uh Feanor's birth because you know it we're told that he is so overwhelming in terms of the power and fire of his spirit um that she just doesn't just drains she, it drains her, her and she doesn't survive yeah yeah and then he goes on to have a record amount of children so he he has seven <laughs> sons and that's like unheard of there's no no none of the elves have that many children um so yeah it's really weird it's but. a lot yeah it's definitely all a domino effect of mm. yeah all of these same things setting up to lead to the events that you know are happening as we're reading them mm -hmm. yeah so um yeah, word arrives that from the fortress where they had been exiled to and were staying, um, Melkor and the darkness reached their fortress and stole the Silmarils and the rest of the gems and jewels and everything that um, had been hoarded there. And also Finway has been killed. He has mm. been slain. So that is what Mandos meant by... When he says, I, when uh, Feanor says, I will be the first of all the Eldor slain in Amon, and the Mando says, not the first, because he already knows, kind of being, you know, the equivalent of Hades and like Lord of mm. the Underworld, so to speak, um, he already knows that this has happened before word reaches them. So Finway has been killed and the Silmarils have been taken. So the worst for Feanor has happened. And he is obviously angry <laughs> and um 
This is when he officially names Melkor Morgoth, the black foe of the world. And this is what he is referred to by the Eldar, I guess, going forward. And so the rest of the chapter goes back and forth between saying Melkor and Morgoth. Mm. Um, So I also might... um, flip back and forth between saying Morgoth and and Melkor, but everyone should know those are the same person. Um, And Morgoth is just the like ultimate Mm. evil name that they have created for him. It's like, it's like an insult. It's like they're cursing him um, by calling him that. Um, The, it it says, the narrator says the Eldar will refer to him as Morgoth forever after, which means in dialogue, he'll he'll always be referred to as Morgoth, Mm. but the narrator will switch back and forth between the two. Um, Yeah. Primarily, the narrator also refers to him as Morgoth from this point onwards, but but yeah. Yeah. So, um, of course, Feanor is very mad. He's mad at Melkor, now Morgoth, of course. And he's also mad, you know, he's mad at the Vel... He's mad at everyone, Mm -hmm. of course, um, because he... In particular, he feels that if he had been there, if he hadn't been summoned to this party, he could have single-handedly defeated Melkor. And, you know, like, here's all these... Of course, they were all at this party and they didn't know that this darkness was coming. So maybe if they had been in, like, battle stance, maybe it would have been different um, if they hadn't been caught by surprise. But, you know, here's... It wouldn't have been that different, I don't think. I don't think the Melkor could have done a whole lot. Um, (laughs) Who knows, yeah. But here is... Feanor, the single elf being like, I could have defeated them if I had been there. So he's very mad. He feels that he could have stopped all of this if he hadn't been summoned to this party. But of course, the irony is that he did not bring the Silmarils with him because he wanted to deprive everyone else of their presence. He was like, if I'm going to come here, you're not going to get to look at the Silmarils. I know that that's what everyone loves to see. Like, that's my party trick and (laughs) I'm not doing it, you know? And if he had brought them, there's a good chance, you know, Melkor maybe would have thought that they were at his fortress and still would have gone. I mean, he, you know, who knows? Maybe Melkor still would have ended up with the Silmarils if Feanor had brought them um, to Valmar. But, um, Point being is that Feanor's own, I don't know, pr- pride, I guess, is what left the Silmarils unattended and got them stolen. And maybe if the Silmarils also, maybe if they hadn't been there, maybe Fenway wouldn't have been killed. Maybe Melkor would have gotten there, realized the Silmarils weren't there, and then just left. Um, maybe Fenway was trying to defend Possibly. I, it doesn't... There's an element of self-hate, I think, in, in Feanor at yeah. this point, because he's blaming himself, but he's he's blaming everybody else by proxy yes. for that blame that he has for himself, you know, um, because I think he has a, a very natural guilt about not having been there to, yes. to defend his father. Um, we are told, actually, to his credit as well, that he values his father's life above the Silmarils and everything else. So he, he like his, his love of his father is his one redeeming trait, really at this point mm. um yeah morally speaking yeah um but it, he yeah he he um he has this i kind of th- think he has this this guilt and self-hatred that that drives him in this moment um and also of course he's also responding to the lies that morgoth the melkor had already um been planting mm. in him for some time so he already has this perception of the valar as being like melkor and coveting his his the works of his hands, his Silmarils. Yeah, it's really, um, and 
kind of later on in the chapter two, it's really crazy that like after all Melkor has done in this chapter, there's still a part of Feanor that believes what Melkor has told him that like, oh, yeah, the Valar just brought you here because they were jealous of what, you know, your potential would be in Middle Earth by yourselves. And so they wanted to keep an eye on you and they're just keeping you here for their own uh, selfish reasons and, and everything. And so th- these lies that Melkor has planted in Feanor, even after, you know, he is revealed to be evil, um, he's Feanor still believes them, which is what's truly incredible that I'm like, really, Feanor, even after all this, you're still believing this guy? Mm, yeah, I, it's not like he believes him. He, I think he just he tricks himself into thinking that there is some truth to some of what Melkor is saying. Yeah, it's like Melkor is like telling lies using the truth. And he's mm. quite he, he plays three dimensional chess with with. Feanor and he wins uh, yeah you know he's just he's too much moves ahead all the time and um, for sure it's it's very clever how, how he works that angle yeah it's also yeah. it's similar to what we see like later on in the mythology from Sauron Sauron does similar stuff in the second age when he makes the rings of power um, you know he he also uses the same sort of tactics where he turns people against each other with using elements of the truth but spinning lies within it and um it's a similar path that they that those two characters are on. Um, mm, yeah. Yeah, so speaking of Morgoth, Melkor, whatever mm. you want to call him, it mentions what he is doing. So he and Ungoliant escape um, across the Helkaraxe. <laughs> Did I say that right? More or less, all? yeah. Hel- Helkaraxe, okay. yeah. Helkaraxe, okay, great. Which is the, the like ice mass bridge sort of that is connecting it's to the north so it's very Mm. dangerous to pass but it is the only way to cross from Valinor to Middle Earth if you like don't have a boat or anything or you don't have an all-powerful sea god Mm. just like lifting you across (laughs) which is how some of them got there in the first place um so they cross and they make it to Middle Earth and now Ungoliant she has been promised essentially like I will give you whatever you want to feast on and previously during this whole you know darkness and everything that's happened Melkor was watching her feast on like the trees and everything and like there was so much that he was like she will never be satisfied Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do now (laughs) (laughs) so she says give me the gems that we just stole so he just I'm just laughing a lot at Melkor. He's like in the face of Ungoliant, who is at this point one of the only people or or beings that Melkor is afraid of. Mm-hmm. And he like hi- basically like hides the Silmarils in one hand behind his back and then gives her the rest of the gems that they had stolen and jewels. And so she eats all of those. And then she says and now the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's quite a comical image. You're not, you're not wrong. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and Melkor just loses it. And um, he is 
very mad and he's like, I'm not going to give you the Silmarils. And um, because they have this light in them and it mentions in a previous chapter that um, if any kind of like darkness or evil tried to touch them, that like they would be burned or something. And so he's holding the Silmarils and they are literally like burning his hand and causing him pain, but he refuses to let them go. So Ungoliant throws a tantrum too and runs off. It says she flees down into Beleriand um, into a valley called Nen Dun not Non Dun Gortheb, the Valley of Dreadful Death. Okay, Um, and it says she bred there. For foul creatures of spiders form had dwelt there since the days of the delving of Angband, and she made it and devoured them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it says that, like, even after all of this, her offspring would stay there. So is that the beginning of Mirkwood by any chance? Uh, not exactly, but um, I, mean, I, I always of, think I'm on to something the, the, cool. No, well, there you are in a way. There's a lineage there. Um, think about Shelob. Shelob is yeah. is Ungoliant's child. We're told that in the Lord of the Rings. Ungoliant is mentioned in the Lord of the Rings in in the in the chapter of Shelob's Lair. So um, she's the last child of Ungoliant. Um, so these creatures that she's creating in Nandungotheb um, with these other spider creatures that were already there. Uh, one of those is Shelob, who ends up okay. ends up in Mordor, and then we're told that the um, that the this great spiders in Mirkwood are Shelob's children. So oh, okay. So okay. yeah, you are right, um, but there's another step there because Shelob. Okay. Shelob is the step, Shelob yeah. is the mother of the spiders of Mirkwood. Um, okay, got it. Yeah. We don't know who Shelob's father is, but we do know that Ungoliant ate him. <laughs> nice solid <laughs> as, as, a, as a spider does you know that's you know yeah. that's the thing um yeah. in nature so yeah um <laughs> the I, I so in my videos on on my silmarillion series on youtube obviously i use the imagery of the spiders and stuff i i have learned now that i have to put a trigger warning for people um when i start talking <laughs> yeah, about uh, like talking them, about yeah. spiders because there's a lot of arachnophobes out there in the world and um but yeah people aren't too keen on on you know too graphic of a representation of of that element of the story sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so it says, Of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells. Yet some have said that she ended long ago when in her uttermost famine, she devoured herself at last. Mm. That's so cool. I love that's so that's (laughs) so cool. Um, So yeah, okay. So I guess that's the end of Ungoliant. Pretty much, yeah. It, we never see. It, we in never, terms of like, yeah, we never we're see never going to see her again. Yeah, there, there was a version. A there was a version of like the end of the Silmarillion story where she does come back actually at one point um, and fights Erendil at the end of the story, um, which obviously we haven't gone to yet. But um, mm. but yeah, in the published version of the Silmarillion and in most versions of the story that Tolkien wrote, she just disappears and dis- disappears into darkness and devours herself Self, which yeah. is i think a, a fitting end for sure i think that yeah it's so cool that's so cool yeah yeah this if you remember the lord of the rings as well something similar is said about shelob as well right she she basically we we never really see her die sam kind of wounds her and takes one of her eyes out and stuff um but then the same thing is said of her really she just disappears into the darkness and and Perhaps she devoured herself. I think, you know, it's similar sort of imagery that's used yeah. used about her end. Um, yeah. Some say that she 
devoured herself. Um, I, I like this. Some say in the Summer of Leone, you know, it's like it's kind of myths within a myth. That yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, it's very much like it, it. You know, it makes it feel much more like these. Like this is folklore. These are mm. stories that are being like told around a campfire or something. You know, that mm. like these are our history. That is because that. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about um, like written language and folklore and everything is that like these are how stories and history were told were just like first in like verbal tellings of everything mm. and it's just like so fascinating to like look at back look back at the history and things and then get to the point where they're finally being written down in some capacity and um yeah yeah so yeah the idea of like you know a camp counselor with like little elven children being mm. like and some say she went into the darkness and devoured herself and then like someone else jumps out from behind the bushes and scares them all you know like <laughs> <laughs> i want to go back a bit because we we missed something yeah sure um it was actually it was ungolian uh, almost overwhelms melkor so she yeah so she basically she gets the better of him in the in the face-off that they have um and you know, we were previously told that in chapter one, Melkor was like this mountain that walks, that the head, his head is in the clouds, and um, he seems like this giant, godlike, all-powerful figure at the beginning. Um, and he he's changed already, Melkor, at this point in the story, because he's he's less powerful than he was at the beginning of the story. Um, and there's a reason for that. He he puts his power out into other beings, into other creatures. Um, and so he's already fought this war of the powers with with the Valar already, which we've already we've heard about. Um, he he's already empowered the Balrogs, and when he does that, he lessens himself because he some of himself leaves him and goes into these other beings that he 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 empowers in that way. And um, in in the lore, in in some of the the notes and the other things that we've we've got on the Silmarillion storyline. We do know that he's also put some of his power into Angolian, so he empowers her in order to, in order for his plan to assault Valinor to work. He he gives her some of his power, so that's why she's able to overpower him. Um, yeah, so yeah. It says, but Angolian had grown great, and he less by the power, uh, by the power that had gone out of him, and she rose mm. against him, and her cloud closed around him and she enmeshed him in a web of clinging thongs to strangle him um and then at that point they're they're by ang band and so some balrogs come out and mm. kind of help out melkor and uh the balrogs must be released. fast they, the balrogs must be really really fast um you think about the balrog in like the peter jackson movie that just sort of stomps like quite slowly i mean it's big so it moves quickly really but but it's kind of stomps and it like it doesn't come particularly quickly to assault the fellowship in in Moria. Um, even in the book, actually, I think the Balrog in the in the book is sort of described differently to how I might imagine the Balrogs in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Um, the Balrogs are never really described in much depth in the Silmarillion. But one thing that we can say about them is that they must have been quick at traveling because they seem to just get there really quickly. Um, yeah, because it's you know it's I don't know. it's miles away the entrance to Angband. It's not <laughs> it's not close particularly. Um, and he lets out this giant cry, this roar that um, it becomes part of it, it, the region where he where he is assaulted by Shelob there is named after this cry that he lets out. And it's said that um, I don't know the exact quote, maybe you can find it. 
Um, yeah, it, yeah, I can't find it either. But it was something like it, like his cry is echoed there for like years afterwards. Yeah, you can still hear the this noise yeah. that he lets out um, for years afterwards, and it's it, again adding that to the the camp counselor story mm-hmm. that's being told of like some say mm-hmm. you can still hear his screams being echoed. <laughs> Maybe we'll hear them now if we're quiet. And then they get quiet. And then that's when the other camp counselor jumps up and scares everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we should, we should move on because I've revived. Yeah. That I've taken us back a, a moment and we should keep going forward. Yeah. So uh, what's his name? So Melkor goes to Ingband and kind of grows in power and I guess is coming back from this. And so he keeps the Silmarils. They're in his power. And he forged for himself a great crown of iron, and he called himself King of the World. In token of this, he set the Silmarils in his crown. And uh, remember, the the Silmarils are are burning him. Um, His hands were burned black by the touch of those hallowed jewels, and black they remained ever after. Ever after. Nor was he ever free from the pain of the burning and the anger of the pain. Um, So... These are physically hurting him, burning him, and the pain is making him angry. And so, like, it's all kind of feeding off of each other, of course. Um, But just, like, you know, classic metaphor of, like, holding on so desperately to the very thing that is hurting you, you know, and, like, the idea of, like power weighing so heavily and and harming physically harming you and and whatnot and if you just like Mm. let go then you wouldn't be in this situation but like it's harming him and the pain is making him angry and then that's making him more evil and yeah all just a vicious cycle it's it's almost a bit like the reverse of the rings of power in a way or, or of the one ring in particular um because the the, the silmarils have been hallowed by Varda the, yes. the Silmarils have been hallowed by Varda and so she um she kind of blesses them with her holy power and but but the light that's trapped within them is this temptation for for Melkor and he can't help himself he he covets the light itself being a, mm. a being of darkness and he he's driven to possess them um at his own you know it at his own detriment, it hurts him to hold them, and yeah, he can't help himself. Really interesting theme in the Silmarillion is, yeah. is light. Um, the you know the thing about the the light is that it, it becomes splintered over time because it, it it's separated into the Silmarils and stored in the Silmarils and preserved there, and then you know what happens to the Silmarils later on happens. But then um, one of them we you we already know about from the Lord of the Rings because the the glass of Galadriel holds one of the light of the Silmarils that's collected from the stars. Uh, oh, I did not know that. No? <laughs> so, yeah, so this is why I said to you, I said to you before we started recording, like rereading The Lord of the Rings after reading The Silmarillion is an interesting experience. Oh, <laughs> cool. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, the, okay. the light the light that's stored within the Silmarils is like this is really important because it's it's you know there's the pure light of the trees to begin with, but then it becomes mm. splintered over time and diluted over time, and it's it's kind of like this metaphor for how the world diminishes over time. It's a very sort of medievalist perspective about how things were awesome back in the mythic days, prehistoric 
mythic days of uh, yore, and um, and now things are you know become less so, and and the world diminishes over time, kind of like um, mm. kind of like an entropy, sort of like a, a theological entropy that we're headed towards. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm Funny how even ba- even back then people were like, man, wasn't it so great a hundred years ago? Mm. And and then, you know, I guess we'll just be doing that for the rest of time is looking back at things and being like, wasn't it so great then? And it's like, I don't know. I kind of like having mm. internet. <laughs> <laughs> I like the internet and indoor plumbing. So yeah, I'm with you there on those th- those particular points. Yeah, for sure. Um I don't the know. actual the the <laughs> physical state of the world, however, of course, is terrible and is on fire. <laughs> so uh, anyway, <laughs> and that is where we are going to leave this week's episode. Dana and I talked for two hours because, as we said at the beginning of the episode, it's a very dense chapter. A lot happens. Even a two to three page chapter of the Silmarillion can take up a full episode of conversation. So I figured going into this that it would turn into a two-parter and sure enough it did. So this week was all about Melkor and our girl boss Ungoliant and next week we will hear about Feanor and spoiler alert, he continues to be the absolute messiest. That's What I'm Talking About is a proud member of WBNE. If you want to learn more about the network, you can go to WBNE.org, where you will find all of our shows like Curly Critics. The cover is by Vaishan Brandon. You can support him on Instagram at Vaishan Designs. You can get merch for That's What I'm Talking About by going to tpublic.com slash user slash pod. You can find the podcast on social media at TolkienAboutPod. You can find me on Twitter at MCWhatsApp and Instagram at MCTurnDownForWhat. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash TolkienAboutPod to explore the different tiers and perks that are available. If you are a member of the 11sies tier, you get access to bonus content. I've been doing I've been doing some mini-sodes with some of my guests after the show where we talk about a piece of media that they recommend for people to watch or listen to or read, etc. And this week, 11sies members got access to the full episode on Chapter 9, both of the parts, so that they could hear it all at once rather than having to wait two weeks to hear both parts. So if that sounds like it interests you, you can become a member of the 11sies tier or you can become a sponsor of the podcast like... Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. I saw on Discord recently that you approved my pronunciation of your name. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for your support. To close out this podcast, I will read a review that someone left. If you also want to say nice things and leave nice words, please do so on Apple Podcasts. Tori from Wisconsin left a very long, lovely review, so I won't read all of it, but she says, or they, I won't assume whatever pronouns you go by. I have listened to approximately five minutes of this podcast, and I already love it so, so much. Lord of the Rings is one of my made fandoms right after Harry Potter. I really love your opinions, and I like how you're just another person reading a book for the first time. And then at the very bottom, they went in and added (laughs) an edit in all caps. Stop dissing the world building. The poems are totally necessary. Tom Bombadil is god tier awesome and not a horror movie ah okay i agree with you that tom bombadil is god tier awesome but he's a little bit terrifying he's just a little bit terrifying if you don't find tom bombadil terrifying i dare you 
to be dropped in the woods at night by yourself, knowing that Tom Bombadil is somewhere out there. And that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm.